Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, another guest from the UK. His name is Larry O'Hara, and he is involved in the publication of both a hard book and also a website, the title of which is Notes from the Borderland, and it's the UK's premier parapolitical magazine. So it's definitely something that I'm very interested in. But in his most recent publication from uh, issue 11, He's written an account I think is very important uh, considering the uh, Assange situation in the UK. But it's about the original rape allegations and we're going to ask him about uh, Assange and, and the reporting about those allegations. I was fortunate enough to watch a documentary about that and uh, I'm looking forward to Mr. O'Hara's opinion. Larry, are you there? Uh, yeah. I, suppose, I am here. Uh, sure. Thank you. I suppose I should use my full title. I'm a doctor, uh, a PhD, okay. and I'm the editor of Notes from the Borderland. Okay, I'm sorry. So I missed that. So yeah, no, all right. Editor, and uh, the most recent uh, one I was just looking at, the papers, uh, you wrote the paper is The Guardian, Julian Assange, and the yeah. Swedish Rape Allegations and Investigation. Can you talk about uh, how you got interested and... Uh, Inform the listeners about uh, what what the essential allegations were, please. Yeah, I mean, um, the reason why I'm interested in that is uh, the, the Guardian newspaper, and I know they have a, an online website which has some credence abroad in the US as well as uh, as well as the UK, and they were one of the media partners that uh, Julian Assange uh, went to. Uh, to publicise his uh, concerns, including that famous uh, uh, video of uh, drones, you know, bombing uh, bombing civilians. And what interested me was that the the Guardian newspaper essentially um, befriended him, pretended they were in an equal relationship, uh, and then did all they could to get hold of the WikiLeaks files from other sources. And then not only did they drop him, but what particularly interested me is that the the premier investigative journalist at the time, somebody called Nick Davies, um, they basically, he got information on the, uh, I'd say inverted commas, uh, rape allegations against uh, Julian Assange, he, he made very selective use of uh, Swedish police documents and he almost single-handedly used the Guardian to turn around the image of Julian Assange from somebody in the UK uh, and probably more, more broadly of somebody who was, you know, whatever his personal morals or whatever, was a crusader for truth and so on. Uh, they turned it round into him being a cowardly rapist, basically. And so what I did is I looked at the information that was publicly available, uh, publicly available, that's in English, never mind Swedish, uh, publicly available when The Guardian wrote their articles having a go at him. And I dissected it and I showed how uh, what Nick Davies wrote was uh, egregious disinformation and lies and then it obviously raises the question on whose part is he doing it and although it's uh, yeah probably i don't know whether it might be seen as sacrilegious by the state department 
But there's a famous photograph, whether staged or not, I don't know, of uh, uh, President Obama in the White House with Hillary Clinton and all the others. And they're supposedly watching the live feed of when Osama bin Laden was uh, executed. And what I did is I added a few speech bubble to it where one of them, one of the military people says to uh, says to the president, uh, you know, it hasn't really worked on uh, on Assange. And uh, he he basically I think it's Hillary Clinton says, well, why don't we send in Nick Davies? And he certainly did a, did as good a job in undermining uh, Assange, a better job in undermining Assange's credibility among left, not all left liberal circles, but he certainly uh, muddied the waters. And one of the ironies of is that after the article, I wrote the article and did that sort of tongue in cheek uh, image on the front cover. And one of our techniques we use in the magazine is something called detournement that I, I, can, I can explain if you want me to. Please do. Uh, I, I found out that subsequently that there was a report of a meeting where Hillary Clinton had actually considered or alleged or joked that maybe they should bomb us. Should bomb him, yeah. They were going to drone strike him. She offered that. Somebody reported that, yeah. Well, It's within her character, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, even if they weren't going to do it, the fact that she could raise it shows you I wasn't too off her mindset without even knowing it. (laughs) Right, well, we we know what what she did in Libya, so... um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. uh, well... I don't know whether you've caught this, but um, she's recently been in the uh, in the US. Um, uh, sorry, in the UK, uh, giving talks, getting deferentially treated by the UK media, and she was actually on uh, the BBC the other day, and that there is a report which has been prepared by an intelligence committee of the UK Parliament, and it's uh, into supposed Russian influence on British domestic politics and the government has chosen not to punish it as not to publish it sorry and she was on on the BBC going oh this is terrible they should publish this well what I thought when I heard that is what about all the uh, backhanders she's got from foreign oligarchs you know or I should say what about what about they didn't ask her any questions about the American embassy uh, in Libya, you know, they just gave a, a really right. I mean, as you as you may as you may guess from my political stance, uh, President Trump isn't somebody I'd be voting for anytime soon if I had a vote. But then I look at Hillary Clinton and I think to myself, I'm damn glad I didn't have a dog in that fight. <laughs> I would I would well, really like to have chosen her. Well, it's, in, it's interesting you bring up that picture of them supposedly watching Osama bin Laden die because. They almost yeah. reenacted it exactly when they killed al-Baghdadi for the fourth or fifth time. I can't I don't even know how many times they've dredged out the leader of ISIS and killed him over and over again. But they restaged this whole, the, the national defense elite looks serene, looking at a monitor. It's all, it's all yeah. propaganda. But interestingly, I've been looking into Nick Davies in relation to uh, Robert Maxwell and his involvement. Yeah, so it's very interesting. I haven't actually published published much on it, but my take, I've got a load of stuff that I've written, but I haven't yet published. But my take on Nick Davies on on Maxwell is that 
essentially Nick Davies, and he's now retired, but I was hoping, you know, everybody else has ever had a go at him. He's gone back at them, but he, he hasn't had a go back at me because he, he doesn't want to get into a firefight with me because he knows it wouldn't work. But basically, my understanding is he was leaked information. He, he made his career through getting leaked information. He was leaked information by somebody uh, in the police because they didn't like a particular a policeman called John Yates, who wasn't involved in the original phone hacking investigation. But he was leaked information and he just basically gone for him. But a lot of the basis of Nick Davies' stories are a bit like, actually, it's interesting that he claims that uh, one of his heroes is Deep Throat, uh, you know, to do with uh, Watergate, uh, sure. Woodward and sure. Bernstein. But when I actually looked into that, I thought what was interesting about that is didn't it come out that Deep Throat wasn't a concerned citizen, but was a deputy director of the FBI who Correct. had a yeah from who, or who, for, an axe for, to, yeah. who had an axe to grind. Now you see, one of the things I I mean I wouldn't call our magazine journalism. I prefer to call it research. And one of the things that troubles me is that a lot of stuff which gets said to be investigative journalism isn't really investigating it's being spoon-fed stuff by different factions of the state and then the, right. the art is in dressing it up as though it's investigation yeah, uh, when point. it's not yes yeah. exactly. well there's two nick there's a nicholas davies and there's a nick davies right ah uh, yeah the so, one of them the nick nicholas davies has written about stuff in northern ireland to do with uh and again, what you're talking about there is you've got all these different sections of the security apparatus, you know, the police service of Northern Ireland, the old special branch, MI6, MI5, uh, army intelligence, all at each other's throats. And of course, what there's a great history of, and the Guardian's very helpful in this, of course, is what you do is you pick on a defunct police squad that no longer exists. And then you uncover loads of crimes that you can, that some of which may well have happened that you can attribute to them. And your readers think that you're really, uh, you know, on the money, you right. know, up to the minute. Whereas, of course, the squads that you go for are ones that no longer exist or aren't important anymore. And so, the, you know. But Nicholas Davies is not the same as Nick Davies, right? Isn't no, that the, no, different? different okay. Because that's the death of a tycoon, an insider's account of the fall of Robert Maxwell by uh, Nicholas Davies. That's one. But yeah. uh, I, might have, I might have read that one, but it's the, the, the Nick Davies one, the Guardian journalist, is the one who had the most uh, 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 most effect in terms of his book is called Hack Attack. I think it was made into a dreadful film which lionized them. And in the UK, it was... Nick Davies' work in collusion with somebody <coughs> who's actually involved in UK politics now, trying to position himself to take over the Labour Party if Jeremy Corbyn doesn't win the next election, called Keir Starmer, who was a director of public prosecutions. And he basically opened it. I've always uh, watched him with great... Uh, 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 been very perturbed by him and he's the one who collaborated with Nick Davies to try and blame the police 
for stuff that the Crown Prosecution Service were at least as responsible for, which Nick Davey was, was happy to do, of course. Right. The hack attack, how the truth caught up with Rupert Murdoch, published 2014. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. But yeah, but that he, was the, but he was yeah. involved with he was involved with leaks involving Maxwell and uh, Vanunu Mordecai Vanunu, who was the nuclear secrets leaker. Um, so, ah, yeah, I know, I know Vanunu. I'm not sure whether it was that Nick Davies. It may, may have been, but it, have, okay. it doesn't ring a bell. Nicholas Davies sounds more likely. It's a bit confusing right. that they've it got is. Yeah. similar names. Well, Nicholas Davies recently passed away, so I know that he's gone to his eternal rest. But uh, Nick Davies is definitely around because I reached out to him thinking he was Nicholas Davies, and he said no. <laughs> so uh, I, I but he's still got a he's still got a Twitter account. Yeah, so that's how. He, so I was in contact with him this year because I'm trying to figure out. Obviously, Robert Maxwell's huge news here, and the Epstein story isn't going away. You want to talk about parapolitics, no. but uh, yeah. It is interesting, this whole Julian Assange and how it got turned, because in my research of the original Swedish charges, they were totally bogus, and the girls were willing participants in spending time with Assange. And Assange back then, in his healthier, hail days, was a bit of a ladies' man, so to speak. He was a bit of a lad, yeah. Yeah, so I think you've you've got to differentiate between his personal... Uh, morality, which uh, and you know whether it was a rape or not, because the interesting person, I mean, I don't think the case was proven beyond reasonable doubt, but I think there are reasonable questions to be asked about Anna Ardan, uh, who who then went to a different part of Sweden to do a to give a statement to a policewoman friend, and who did have previous links with Cuban dissident groups. I certainly think that there is, uh, you know, it's reasonable. It's reasonable to speculate that that uh, it might have been uh, a put-up job by, you know, by the, an, a, American intelligence agencies. But the whole point is, even if it wasn't, I think there's enough holes in Ardan's testimony because the other person, the other woman, didn't really want to press any charges right. at all. Yeah, there really. were two. There's but, enough holes but, in, Ar- in Ardan's testimony to make you think that this was... Uh, and, and, of course, what Assange said was, uh, they're just using this to get me to the US. And, of course, the likes of Nick Davies said, oh, no, no, of course not. Uh, <laughs> and that's exactly what's no, happening not, now. Yeah. Like, it's just exactly. a matter of time. Yeah. If he survives, if Julian survives, is fortunate enough to uh, make it to the U.S., but... I think that one of the charges claims was that he did not use a condom in their carnal relations, and that that was what they were using for rape. So it wasn't a question of willingness or unwillingness or no. It was some kind yeah. of absurd uh, trumped-up charge. And I, those women were, I mean, they, I think they were at their house. So she, they invited them back both to their apartment. Yeah, it was, I think it was separately. I mean, I think right. one of the possible dynamics of it is that when... The second woman, the one who's had the, you know, the police connections, when she found out he'd been with somebody else, when she was the one who actually sent out a tweet, wasn't she? I've got the most exciting man in the world. We're having right. a crayfish party. Right. And, and I do think there is an account which uh, was in English. I've, I've forgotten the name momentarily of the guy, but of a, a Swedish journalist, I think, who dissected her various accounts 
and uh, you know was in associate affairs and just didn't find them didn't find them credible. But my understanding too is that she, uh, the second one, Ardern, was back with him supposedly after she was assaulted. So like, then oh, yeah, she, yeah, yeah. So that's she's right. right so, that's right. So she's back in a fawning thing. He was like a little kind of a mini rock star giving talks yeah. and you know being fated around the cat cafe cafes yeah. of uh, Stockholm or wherever he was in Sweden. But you know, it was kind of like these were his kind of little. Um, intelligentsia groupies so to speak in a way it yeah. seemed like that to me yeah that's right so yeah so those charges are bogus and they all got turned by the media even here in the states that he was brought up on rape charges but they yeah. were supercilious at best it's just not i mean the whole definition of rape that was uh you know operating in sweden then and possibly now is rather different than that which might obtain elsewhere so, what, how, what do you mean by that? How is it, how is it different? Well, I think I remember that, um, well, consensual sex, you know, sex without a condom, I think in some circumstances in Sweden could be defined as rape, whereas it wouldn't be elsewhere because you'd say, well, if you didn't want to engage in sex, then <laughs> without a condom, then you wouldn't right. at all. Right. So, but right. it wouldn't even be a charge. In most countries, uh, right, right. So it's a little, it's a, a more stringent how, standard. How would that mean something different? You know. Yeah, and do you remember the years of those? I don't recollect exactly the dates of those claims, but they've hounded him with those for all the way up until today. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking at the. Uh, I'm trying to think, I think it was those charges are like, like almost ten or fifteen years old. Like they're super uh, old. Not quite that old. Okay. I'll just see if I find it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, there, I can't remember the name of the documentary I saw about it, but I was, you know, I, obviously I think that the. Yeah, the, 2010. 2010. Yeah, 2010 okay. is when he was in Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's. Uh, those are remarkable. But the way that they got turned here and propagandized to the American people is that it besmirched yeah. his character. Even as well, a suspected rapist. The key thing that did it, that set the agenda, it's all about setting agendas, was, I've just, I've just got the headline now, was the thing here, uh, 10 days in Sweden, uh, Nick Davies, unseen police documents. Well, they clearly were seen by him. And of course, what I uh, established in the article was that there were other police documents that were released around the same time in the same dossier that Davies deliberately did not use because they cast a different light on Assange. And at the time that he wrote that article, those documents, you know, freedom of information, not really. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't refer to the existence of those other documents at all. So it was a deliberate hatchet job. Does the, do you know if the UK has something like they have here in the States, Operation Mockingbird, where the intelligence agencies deliberately own people in the media? Is there, do you know if there's a name well, for that? I don't, or about, I don't know about own, but there are, there are obviously uh, security correspondents um, in each, each newspaper, first of all. Secondly, each newspaper has a uh, media outlet has somebody who will liaise uh, with the uh, secret services. But so they don't. And, and there have been reports 
by some journalists of being approached by the Secret Services and offered them money to go on the payroll, or they're the ones who've turned it down. So although it might be called a specific operation, I think the idea that there are these close uh, uh, trend-setting connections. In fact, I was just reading something. Um, There's a guy who you probably heard of. If you haven't, he's worth looking at. Uh, called Craig Murray, and he used to be a British ambassador to an obscure uh, Russian uh, or, or republic near Russia, I think Uzbekistan or somewhere. But anyway, he left the diplomatic service and he does a blog. And on his blog, he, he, he uncovers a lot of things of interest. And one of the things of interest he's uncovered, I was just reading it uh, yesterday, is there's somebody who uses the name... Philip Cross, who intervenes on Wikipedia sort of 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, attacking and sub-editing, you know, changing the edits of anybody who's critical of the secret state. And what uh, Murray drew attention to is that this guy, Philip Cross, has a load of, and he listed a load of media correspondents of newspapers and uh, broadcasting organisations who were all subscribing to this Philip Cross's feed when there wasn't really much original to it. And he pro- he speculates that Philip Cross is probably just a cover name for the uh, intelligence desk of one of the, uh, you know, uh, w- one of the intelligence agencies who's just pumping out uh, propaganda. On which, of which Wikipedia, I think, is full. I call it the, uh, I don't know, the, the fool's paradise. It's anything can appear on Wiki, Wikipedia. Um, you know, and I don't really... Interesting. ...set much store by it. Well, I don't trust the Wikipedia either, but it's, you know, it has, it's, uh, it's got an outline or a skeletal outline of people's biographies and stuff. But my... Interestingly, I had a uh, kind of run-in with The Guardian. I was quoted by them, and they I had two hour-long interviews with their correspondent out here on the West Coast in San Francisco. Oh, which, which correspondent? Oh, I have to find it. I forgot his name. I remember his face. But uh, <laughs> it was I, when they quoted me, they quoted about two sentences and asked me all, and they were really prodding me for information, personal well, information, anything they it's could funny. get. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because... Around the time of the uh, the nail bombings in London in 1999 that David Copeland was involved in, just after that, I had a guy, a journalist called Martin Bright, who was then working for The Guardian and The Observer, and he rang me up and he grilled me for about two hours on this story and other things. I mean, some questions I didn't want to answer, like the exact circulation of the magazine, but he, he gave me a real grilling and at the end of it, I said, um, can you tell me uh, which part of what I've said to you are you going to publish and in what kind of story? And he said, quick as a flash, oh, no, I'm not going to publish any of this. And then you think to yourself, uh, well, I won't swear, but then you think to yourself, why was he pumping me for two hours? Right. Well, that's, a, that's exactly how I felt after I got done talking yeah. with him. And I was going through yeah. my YouTube channel. I was giving him stats, and nothing yeah. showed up. The name of the article I was in, 
The guy's name is Paul Lewis from February 2nd, 2019. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I, I talked with Paul guy. Lewis for two hours, yeah. So the name of the article is Fiction is Outperforming Reality, How YouTube's Algorithm Distorts Truth. But, oh. yeah, very interesting. But not really true. I think that it was a besmirch of independent well, independent well, uh, well, journalists, I think is really what his, his goal was. What is interesting, I'll just note that down. Yeah, the it's name of the article, of... again, if any listener wants to uh, read it, is Fiction is Outperforming Reality, How YouTube's Algorithm Distorts Truth by Paul Lewis, published in The Guardian, 2nd of February, 2018. It's on com. I'm looking at it right now. Now, the reason why Paul Lewis is interesting, I'll just check. Because, as you might guess, if I have 10,000 books, I don't have them all to hand. But I'll just look, just to check something. But it's funny, like, I was talking to him, I gave him my background, I was an attorney, you know, I have, you know, I've written books, I'm an author... And they decided to call it William Ramsey and a cold investigator. It's just like, come on, man. This is this is like Mind one... you. Pardon well, me? I have a feeling, I have a feeling that Paul Lewis, you know, I mentioned about the, the Guardian in particular looking, going for defunct police squads. I think he co-authored uh, a Guardian book on that very uh, phenomenon. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. So no surprise right there. Let's find out. To, to be fair, to be fair, and I think before people are executed, you should always have a trial. To be fair, your um, symbol there of your right Skype symbol says occult Hollywood. Right. So, so I mean, that's my that's my documentary. That it's my documentary. Yeah. I did an occult. Right. So I've done part of my research. I've done true crime, a Crowley biography. Another Crowley biography, a study of the Smiley Face Killers, which is true crime, which is happening in the UK, Young Men. Oh, Alistair Crowley. I've read read his stuff. Yeah, unfortunately I have as well. But uh, anyway, so I mean, it's fair. If anything, if if I pigeonholed anybody, did it to me, I did it to myself. But still, they could call me an author. The Guardian could at least say researcher, author, independent investigative journalist is probably fair, general enough, but I, you know. Yeah, I was uh, underwhelmed by the whole experience of talking to the Guardian. I don't think I would talk to him again because I was really proffering information that I thought would be helpful. I was trying to be as transparent as possible in my mind. I was just answering well, his questions. Know. You see, if he rang you up and he said, I'm, ring- I'm ringing on behalf of MI5 or MI6. We just want to update our files. You'd have told him where to go, wouldn't you? Yes, I would. Yep. He rings you up and says he's from the Guardian and people think, oh, it's like if people say, Oh, I'm from the BBC. And a lot of people have a misguided view that the BBC is valid and neutral. Uh, I don't. But a lot of people do. I think I imagine particularly people in the US as well. I would say so. I think that the corporate media or any state-associated media people are getting becoming more wise to. But uh, they used to really trust the, the main... Corporate ABC, NBC, CBS used to be trusted, and now I think that really thinking people who are able to tell when people are when people are lying to them, they don't have any. Those corporate media outlets don't have any credibility. But I mean, you know, there are some journalists who are quite good. I always, I'm old enough to remember when the BBC's American correspondent was somebody called Charles Wheeler, and I always. Uh, I always really rated him. I never liked Alistair Cook, I must admit. But Charles Wheeler, 
I always thought he was like, I saw a couple of things he did on uh, American elections, just going around speaking to people. And I thought he was very courteous and measured and, um, you know, a genuinely informative. But, you know, good journalists are in such a minority, you can remember the names. Yeah, no, excellent point. That's very true. Very, very true. Unfortunately, that's this kind of sad state. Even when I was growing up and I was younger, I remember most of these television journalists had some type of uh, gravitas and were intelligent. They don't have it anymore. I can't even find one. I think it's, uh, yeah, to do that job, somebody feeding you information, you have to be of a certain character, fortunately. Um, anyway, we kind of got off the beaten track. Do you want to talk anything about Assange that... Uh, that about that you know your investigation i mean your conclusion is is that the charges were uh, less than uh satisfactory is that true yeah that's right i'm just looking at it now yeah no i don't think the charges um didn't it, it didn't was up. yeah it kind of had did. an intel intel whiff of intelligence activity to oh yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's right that's right and um so he's been targeted for 10 years, so it's been a decade for him. Yeah. So. See, one of the interesting things about uh, Davies, uh, up until I did that article on him, which I know he was aware of, uh, one of the interesting things about Davies is, up until that point, whenever anybody had a go at him, he'd have a go back. But he's never had a go back at me. But he did intervene in a number of forums. And what I did is I just took his defences of himself and just basically uh, uh, t- uh, trash trash them uh, basically and he's not alone it's just that Nick Davies had such a uh, a good reputation in this country uh, undeserved particularly over the, the Maxwell stuff interesting that um, you know I thought it was time he was taken down uh, a peg or two he also interestingly Nick Davies he has fronted some TV programs in the past. And one of the ones he fronted, he, he Nick Davies made his career. Uh, and I do hope he listens to this and responds, but he's a gutless coward, so he won't. Uh, but one of the things Nick da- that made Nick Davies' name in England in the early sort of 1980s is he did some stuff on uh, police uh, corruption. Mm. And of course... In the course of that, you know, one of one of the things is that these these organisations like the security services or the police, they are monolithic. So in other words, they have a command structure, and then they have the rank and file, and then they have the different stations, then they have the different units, and often they're all at odds with each other. And one thing that Nick Davies did is he he was obviously given information by some people in the police regarding rogue informers who had infiltrated uh, drugs gangs or had been members of drugs gangs and had been turned, who then, while they were on the police payroll, went and committed uh, crimes. And so he he, he publicised this. Obviously, some people in the police didn't like that. He publicised this. He, he made a reputation for it. Now, the reason why that's relevant is because one of the far-right groups we had in England in the early early 1990s was a, a neo-Nazi group called Combat 18. Uh, the one stands for the letter, first letter of the alphabet, and then the eight is, is the H in the alphabet, i.e. Com- Combat Adolf Hitler. 
and he actually produced a documentary in which he alleged that uh, one of the leaders of this organisation had been a police informant. But I actually corresponded with him afterwards and I said, Mr Davies, can you tell me why when you outlined, uh, did stories on police informants in drugs gangs, you quoted their handlers reports and this, that and the other to show they were on the payroll. Why did you not do this in the case of this man? And his response was, well, yeah, I know I didn't, but I was told it by people I had every reason to believe. Well, that's not real. That's not hard evidence. And of course, the irony of it is, is that there were police agents in that organisation. But I've got the idea that not the person he named as the agent, but somebody else was the agent. And therefore, in effect, Nick Davies and uh, World in Action, uh, was the documentary, uh, were actually covering up for real agents. Wow, nice. disinformation. Nice. Disinformation. It wasn't, but uh, Combat 18 was kind of a serious unit, didn't they? Weren't there murders attributed to them? Well, there was somebody, well, there was somebody who was on the fringes of Combat 18, uh, Colin Ireland, I think a former soldier, which I think he was. He uh, murdered a few gay people, but not under the direct aegis of the organisation. Then you've got the nail bombings that I talked about, uh, David Copeland. Right. But... Uh, the intro, that, yeah. wasn't, that wasn't carried out by Combat 18 as such themselves. But one of the things that's interesting uh, in relation to today is that uh, Combat 18 produced uh, very uh, violent sounding publications with, you know, lists of bomb making equipment. And they gave the home addresses of people who they didn't like. So they were obviously hoping that people might go and do something. Uh, not very much happened. But what's interesting is that more recently, uh, a group called uh, National Action uh, in the UK, they were actually banned and they've been, you know, a they're a prescribed organisation. So being a member of it is enough to get somebody jailed. Interesting. Uh, their language and their, tar their targeting of people was nowhere near as specific as Combat 18, which was never banned, and they have been. And I do wonder whether there's some kind of spurious evening up the balance going on between um, people who are uh, jihad, Islamic jihadists, and they're trying to make out that the far right is as much of a threat as them. But in terms of the numbers of plots and people killed in the UK... Uh, it just doesn't. It just doesn't compute. The jihadis outnumber the right-wing radicals, correct? Ten to one. Uh, yeah, and in particular in the plots. But you see, what they do because they've outlawed national action. When they produce these statistics of, uh, you know, far-right extremism, that it's bumped it up because all somebody has to do is to be a member of it, an associate of it. Right. And, and there was a recent uh, court case where somebody, after national action was banned, they continued to meet uh, in various public houses, as these most of these political groups spend their time in public houses, talking about what they're going to do next. In fact, there was a famous 
um, pamphlet written about the political left, not the right, a few years ago. And its title is When This Pub Closes. In other words, when this pub closes, I'm going to do this, that and the other, which they often never got round to. But anyway, after the group was banned, once somebody had been, they just used to meet to continue to drink and and talk and uh, whatever. One former member of the group, which didn't exist, came along to this pub meeting and when they were all drunk, announced that he was going to uh, get a machete and attack a Labour MP. Now, I think he probably was. And so what happened is an informant who was inside in the organisation, run by an organisation called Hope Not Hate, which is a sort of a state-linked pseudo-anti-extremist organisation. That informant went to the police this guy, uh, I mentioned his name because he's now in jail for it, uh, Renshaw, got arrested. They went to his house. They found a machete. So I don't. I think it's reasonable to suppose that he hadn't bought the machete to trim the flowers or whatever. Right. He, he probably bought it to do what he was talking about. But the interesting thing was um, charges were then brought against other people who'd been in the pub to try to make out it was a plot by them all to kill this MP. And even though it went to court twice, the jury threw it out. They didn't accept it. Interesting. You know, so they they got Renshaw, quite rightly, but these other people, and, and also the jury didn't really accept that they were still members of this organisation. Um, and even though the jury didn't accept it, the people who... Hope Not Hate, who'd originally brought the uh, it to public light, and still have produced a book called Nazi Terrorist. So most people would think that means there'd be evidence of Nazi terrorism in the book, and uh, well, there wasn't. There wasn't really. <laughs> Do you know if they're reading or obtaining literature from the U.S. as well, like from Adam Waffen? I know that you and I yeah. offline have talked about some of his materials. I think so. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, uh, James uh, Nolan Mason, I think his book, which you can't, as we discussed, you can't really get a hard copy of it. That was required reading for uh, oh, people. Interesting. So in, it, even in the UK, so they're leaderless resistance, you know, independent action, non-linear leadership, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, in terms of reading, but then the question is, what do they actually do? But yeah. Right. Well, Adam, I know Adam Waffen is very serious. They've, there's been five or six murders here in the States uh, related to people who were involved yeah. directly in Adam Waffen. And there was one guy they know who was in Adam Waffen at this whole Charlottesville uh, kerfluffle or whatever you want to call it, the weird nighttime torch marching and stuff like that, which, you know, it's hard yeah. to believe. Tough. I mean, I've got that. I did look at that. I mean, there were two people killed who were members of Affenwaffen who were killed by Devon Arthurs and then I've got somebody else. I don't uh, know the, what uh, who's Dev, Devon Arthurs killed two members of Adam Waffen? Yeah, of his own organisation. I don't so know that's, that. That's classed as, they're classed as two of the murders. Whereas I think you might call that blue on blue, I don't know whether you would. I know that there was one death here in uh, Los Angeles the Young guy took a Jewish man out to the woods and killed him. That was yeah, that was Blaze Bernstein. Yeah, Blaze Bernstein. Was 
Now, you see, one thing I did is I looked at that and I thought, yeah, that's uh, that's obviously, you know, reprehensible. But then what I did, just as a matter of interest, is I looked up the number of murders that there were in the U that there have been in the US recently, and it may well not be as high as it has been, but I've got for 2016 17,413 murders. 2017, 17,294, and thankfully a slight decline in 2018, 16,214. So I think we we shouldn't probably let this get out of、uh, perspective. I think there are all kind of complex reasons about why people might be attracted to, you know, right-wing groups to do with、yeah, the far right. I would call Adam Walker、yeah. very far right. I've seen、yeah. some of their videos. They're not on. They got kicked off off of YouTube, but they're on BitChute, and they are、oh, deranged.、Yeah. They are really crazy. Yeah. Well. Well. I mean, you see, what is particularly interesting there is, apart from the kind of、uh, na- na- Nazi、uh, aspect to it, there's that kind of Nazi satanic influence, and、right. they ha-、yes. they have a situation. With somebody who's long interested me、uh, in the UK called David Myatt, he was involved. Yes, I know Myatt. I've read about Myatt. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was involved. He was involved in Combat Eighteen. Interestingly, he's been in and out of so many different groups. Yeah, he the, became Islamic for a while, or yeah, some form. Yeah. 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 And he、uh, had his organisation, the the、uh, Order of the Nine Angles, and currently. He claims that he's not involved in anything、uh, of that sort, but you know what? He's had so many different changes of skin over the years.、Um, these people are way beyond any concept of truth. So really, anything they say—it's、uh, kind of like camouflage. Yeah, it's、uh, yeah.、Um, no, it's it's very remarkable. The、uh, yeah, Myatt's been around for a long time. But、uh, the occult, one of the things of my interest in Adam Waffen really was after seeing their materials and the occultism that is prevalent、yeah. in all their materials is really pretty sh-、uh, shocking for me. So I was surprised to see that. I didn't know that it really Adam Waffen really is a right wing occult group, no question in my mind. Yeah, yeah, and there was some、uh, there was some members of National Action, like there's somebody called Ryan Fleming who uses the. Pseudonym A. A. Moraine. He was involved、uh, in Atomwaffen, sort of、uh, internationally, and there is、uh, a small couple of、uh, youngsters, I'd call them,、uh, you know, in their early twenties, who were jailed for a group called Sonnenkrieg, which is like Sunwar, which is a kind of an Atomwaffen、uh, spin-off.、Oh. You see, one of the things that interested me about them, and this is the comparison with Combat Eighteen. Is that they were、uh, jailed because they put forward propaganda urging people to, you know,、uh, attack individual policemen who they named.、Uh, but but they, the address they gave was the address of the police station where he worked. So what I'm thinking is, right? So they didn't give his home address. They didn't do anything themselves. Talk is cheap. Whereas combat. Eighteen did attack some people in the homes and did print home addresses, and they were never banned. So the actual threshold for banning 
people now in the UK seems to be a lot lower uh, than it used to be. And I'm always in two minds about banning groups, because if you ban, ban groups, then you drive them underground. Many people might give up, but then those people who are into their mindset, it might just glamorize them in their own mind. It might encourage them to carry out extreme acts. I think you've got to be looking at further down the chain about what is it that drives people to have such desperate lives that they're drawn towards this kind of stuff. I think that's maybe. That's good. uh, That's a good point. I mean, I think it's some kind of perception that uh, they're under attack, so they have to join these violent uh, supremacy groups, something like that, some feeling of insecurity, I would say. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, he was often said about, uh, you know, I'm not sure whether it's true or not at all, that a lot of the members of the National Action, you know, were alleged to be personal inadequates. I'm not sure whether they are. But even if they were, then that's something to do with the society then, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. I would definitely say so. Do you have, we're kind of at 45 minutes, do you have any thoughts on the current Assange situation in perspective of your paper on uh, those rape allegations? Um. Well, I think it's unfortunate that he's he's going to uh, he's obviously in the end he's going to end up in the U.S., which is what he predicted anyway. And of course, it's way beyond him. It's 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 a kind of it's a kind of message to anybody who might want to um, uncover things that the state doesn't want uncovered. It's an excellent uh, that point. We're gonna, yes. That we're going to get you. Yeah, well, he was the he was the number one target. So. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what happens in the future. I mean, he was so important to the 2016 election, and it's still going on right now. They're still prosecuting Roger Stone, this kind of political right-wing political operative, for yeah. whether he was getting information from WikiLeaks. So the WikiLeaks is tied to Seth Rich. It's tied to uh, Hastings, another guy who was killed in the States. Uh, oh, see, sorry, had a car see, crash. See, one thing I find uh, slightly amusing, really, is... Um, if you live long enough, things come full circle. So when I was growing up in the 1970s and first interested in politics, the, one of the standard themes was that the British left was said to be uh, infiltrated and in the pay of the Russians. Whereas now, it seems to be people are saying it's actually the British right or in tra- uh, and the American right are right. in the pay of the Russians. But of course, what also interests me is that um, essentially, I think that people who've got lots of money uh, are seeking to influence politics, you know, throughout the world. Yes. And certain triggers to avoid themselves being uh, subject to scrutiny. So, I mean, you know, as, as you probably know, we, we had the referendum in this country on. Uh, Britain membership of the European Union or yes, not. Yes, yes. Now, again, when I was growing up, opposition to the EU was a, a staple point of people on the left. And I have never seen any reason to change my viewpoint. And that's the viewpoint I still hold to. But of course, we have, since we had the referendum, there has been big money poured into pressure groups who want to keep Britain in the EU, in particular by somebody whose name might ring a bell, uh, George Soros. Right. 
And uh, whenever anybody, it's almost implied that the only people who have a problem with George Soros influencing British politics are people on the right. Well, I'm not on the right. And not only do I have a problem with him, I actually remember, which people should, in the early 1990s, Britain was loosely aligned to a, a, a European Union um, monetary system. And they left it in pretty short time. But as as their currency was in a bit of crisis and then they left it, George Soros intervened on the money markets and took millions and millions of pounds from the British taxpayers by speculating against the currency. And people seem to have forgotten that. And also, I've looked into something. George Soros is known for giving uh, lots of money to philanthropic foundations worldwide, as he calls it. They're perceived by people at the other end as interfering in uh, politics. But I also saw at the same time where he hadn't paid many taxes for many years and he reached some kind of arrangement with the uh, your uh, your your revenue authorities to make some kind of payments and let him off the rest. So basically, George Soros is not paying the taxes that he should and he's using it to interfere in uh, in politics in different countries. Whoever does it, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the Russians doing it. I don't agree with Soros doing it. Whoever it is, I don't agree with it. But right. Makes you know. perfect sense. Is there anything that I've missed or anything you'd like to follow up, uh, end up with? Uh, no, just to say that in the uh, next issue of the magazine, we're going to be writing uh, quite a bit about national action and the banning of it. And we will be using some uh, intelligence reports, which we've obtained, shall we say, in inverted commas, uh, concerning the running of agents. So we'll be outing a number of agents and we'll be outing some of the people financing them and I think that will cause uh, a little bit of controversy, Good. which is what we like. Good. Well, again, it's Larry O'Hara. The website is Notes from the Borderland. It's borderland.co.uk B-O-R-D-E-R-L-A-N-D all one word, .co.uk Again, Notes from the Borderland, the UK's premier parapolitical magazine and we were talking generally about uh an article that's in uh borderland 11. 11 correct borderland. 11. i wanted to talk maybe another time we can talk about the gareth williams situation oh, yeah. the young man who was yeah. found in the uh, that's right that's bank. recently come into the news as well again here but the other thing i would say is we encourage people to try and buy a hard copy of the magazine because we don't put everything on the website because we know that the web, in a flick of a switch, a website can be gone. Yep. Once you've got hard copies, are rather more difficult to disappear. Yeah, good point. Excellent point. Larry O'Hara, thank you so much for the interview. That's great. Thank okay. you. Okay. All right. I just.